0: Well, hello and welcome back to the Vineyard Church Podcast. We are in week two of our series in James and Chris is talking about how we manage our hearts, understanding where our worth comes from, and where we should put our hope. Here's Chris. <laughs> you beat me to it. Good morning. How you guys doing? Excited to be here today. If you're joining us for the the first time, we had kicked off a brand new sermon series last week in the book of James. And so if you have a Bible, open up to James chapter 1. Uh, there is a index in the front of your, your Bible that will tell you what page that's on. You can open up there. Um, and we're going to, uh, continue. Today we're only covering four verses. So this is going to take months, uh, which we're kind of becoming famous for. So, uh, but it's going to, it's so rich. The book of James is so full of wisdom and practical, uh, application of what Jesus taught, and and so I love the book of James. We're gonna have a blast going through it. Uh, but before we jump in, I have got two things I need to to kind of say, clue you in on, or whatever. Uh, you guys may remember back in March and April we did something called bridging the gap. Yeah. You remember that? Um, and uh, and we asked you guys um, at the end of that we had a kind of a commitment Sunday, and our goal was to raise two and a half million dollars to Uh, To renovate the children's building across the street and to do stuff in Costa Rica and Hope Center, and all those things are happening, and and it's really, really exciting to watch all that unfold. But uh, at the end of that, when we had our Commitment Sunday, you guys pledged $3 million. Uh, And I came back and I said, which is amazing, and I came back and said, you know the, the amazing thing is, is that God has given us way more vision than He has re- financial resource. Now He's got all the financial resource in the world, um, and so we've got things that we're going to be able to do that we weren't wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Uh, in the meantime, we had this amazing opportunity open up that I want to make you aware of, uh, and that is the building right next door to our building on Warden Run Road uh, became available to us. Um, And so we are in the process of purchasing that building. Uh, It includes parking that we use on Sunday morning, so it preserves the value of the building that we already have because it preserves the parking uh, and enables us to fully utilize that building when we utilize that building. But it also... Uh, is going to give us, it's got a gymnasium in it. It's going to give us the ability to do some sports ministry and youth programming, uh, hoping to put maybe a counseling center on the first floor and part of it. And we're out of office space uh, at the at the church right now. And so for future expansion with an eye on regional campuses and eventually the whole state of West Virginia with campuses, we have office space to grow into. And it was just one of those timely opportunities. It opened up. We're getting. A, for a really good price, and it is a phenomenal piece of property in a building. But I wanted you to hear it from me and not in the newspaper uh, or or somewhere else. So that, uh, because of your outrageous generosity, we are able to step into that and purchase that property. And uh, really, I believe, I'm, in fact, I was just talking to to uh, Julie backstage, I was like, I'm just as confident as I can be that this is the right next step for the church, um, and God just setting us up for quite a future ahead of us. So, um, thank you for your outrageous generosity, and I really do believe God is is getting us ready for really big things. So, thank you guys for that. Uh, Second thing um, is, if you did not bring a Bible this morning, you can open up on your... You can open up on your device. I want to point you to the Scripture, read along. Uh, And if you did not bring a Bible and you are opening up on your device. I want to challenge you to get a paper Bible and c- bring it with you to church. Now, don't carry it around all week long to beat people up with it, okay? That's not what it's for. Uh, these are not weapons, right? This is this is the, well, it is the sword of the Spirit, but but it is, we, we do not use this to beat people up, but I want this to become your friend because in the middle of the night when the wheels are coming off and uh, you need an answer, you can't call me, but you can open this and come up and God's answers for life, are in this book, and uh, I want to challenge you to become acquainted with it, to become friends with it, and as you circle, highlight, underline, as you write notes in the margins, this will become your friend, bring it to church on Sunday, allow it to shape your worldview. So important. As I shared last weekend, we have a table in the lobby with books on it, with Bibles. Uh, You want a translation that you can understand and you want a study Bible if you can. And so study Bibles range from $22 to $60, something like that. It is absolutely a worthy investment. If you don't have one, get one. Bring it to church on Sunday. Uh, Just as a note, everything we have out there is really mostly for your reference. You can go buy them other places. We have a few that you can buy back there. We're not making any money on this. This is just to make these accessible to you. And the other thing that I want to encourage you to pick up uh, is a journal, and uh, we have a notes page in here. If, if, if you follow the instructions that I put together and put in the front of this, you will be able to tomorrow pick up the Bible, read it, and get something out of it, and then uh, and then write down what God's teaching you. These are two bucks, again, just what we have in it, and uh, we'll help you. And I want to encourage you guys to make the Bible... Your roadmap for life, and to become acquainted with it, and so we'll continue to put the scriptures on the screen, uh, but it's going to become much more a part of who you are if you are reading it regularly, and um, and if you I, there's something powerful about bringing it to church. So there you go. All right, we are in James. James is Jesus's half brother, so he's not his full brother because. Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, and Mary gave birth to him. Uh, James is the son of Joseph and Mary. And if you're Catholic, you're scratching your heads, or if you have a Catholic history, you're scratching your head going, wait a second, I thought thought Mary and Joseph didn't have children. I thought that Mary remained a virgin forever. And so here we are at a place where, uh, where most Protestants And the Catholic Church disagrees, since we're a very heavily Catholic community. I figured I probably ought to address this. Um, There is a theological difference there. Um, And so let's acknowledge it. I'm not mad at the Catholics. We're all friends. We get along. We just see this differently. My perspective and the perspective of most Protestants is that is that when you read the Bible and you just read what's in the Scriptures, the Word of God, what we see is very clearly, contextually, that James is Jesus' half-brother. The Bible says that that, uh, Joseph and Mary did not come together uh, maritally until after Jesus was born, which insinuates that they came together maritally after Jesus was born, um, that, they, that they did. Uh, and then we see references in the book of Matthew a couple times to his brothers and sisters. Brothers are given by name. And so the word there for brother or sister could be interpreted family member, cousin, whatever, which is what the, uh, the Catholic Church teaches. Um, but again, when you look in context clearly, They're addressing Jesus' immediate family. And so, when you start with, and this is true in so many parts of our life, you start with a presupposition that this is what is, then you go out and you look for things to to back up your presupposition. And so, again, in, in Catholic theology, the presupposition is that Mary is the queen of heaven, that she is sinless, and so to be sinless, she needed to be, and she's married to God. Um, and so, so uh, not necessarily biblical presuppositions, but they are presuppositions. Um, We're going to presuppose that these things are true. Then you go out into the Scripture and you try and find things that back that up. When you just read the Scripture, you don't come to that conclusion, right? Um, and so, same thing. I think the same thing is true with, uh, with the theory of evolution, right? When you start with the presupposition that there is no God well, then you can make all kinds of leaps of logic to back that up and say, well, we don't have evidence for this, but we think this because. And so, and not to compare the Catholic Church to evolution, but, you know, that was really, don't tell anybody I said that. All right, All right, so just so, so my heart's clear on this, I don't have a, an ax to grind with anybody. I just felt like, man, need to address it. It becomes very clear if you read the Scripture for what, what the Scripture says, that Jesus had brothers and sisters and that James is Jesus' half-brother. Um, as I shared last week, one of the things that is just compelling about the story of James is that up until he sees his brother resurrected from the dead, he's a skeptic. He doesn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. Then he sees his brother face to face, and he goes on to become a pillar of the early church and the church in Jerusalem. It's one of the greatest turnarounds in history. Now, here's what I know. There are some of us here who are in the same boat as James. You are a skeptic. Maybe you're here because there's a pretty girl who invited you to church, or maybe a relative has been pressuring you or whatever, and you're like, I don't know what I believe about this Jesus guy, but she's kind of good looking, so I'm going to come along, and, and you're trying to figure it out, or maybe you're not even trying to figure it out. You're pretending that you're trying to figure it out. Either way, glad you're here. Hope you keep coming back, and I really do believe that God will reveal himself to you. He says if you seek him with all your heart, you'll find him. And, uh, and the people sitting around you have a faith in God because God has made himself real to them. And if you continue, I believe that God will make himself real to you. And in fact, since we are in the book of James, uh, let me challenge you to come back each and every week for this book. Kind of make that your, your period of time to check this out, whether things work out with her or not. Um, and, uh, and just keep coming back and, uh, and just see if God doesn't make himself real to you. All right, so, have you had enough time to open up to James chapter 1? All right, let's, let's uh, start in verse 9. This is what it says. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. As we established last week, he's writing to Christians who had once lived in Jerusalem. They have been scattered all over the world because of a great persecution that has broken out against them. They had to leave behind their businesses, their lives, their families, everything that was of value. And so they are refugees with only what they can carry on their backs. They're living in very humble circumstances, and many of them may have not been humble circumstances before they left. They've lost everything. Now, in thinking, how does this apply to us? Because most of us are not refugees who fled with just what we could carry on our backs. But the reality of life is that every one of us will face humble circumstances as we walk through this life. It may be a season. Um, it may be an injury or a physical limitation because of a disease that has humbled you. Uh, and and uh, it may be a uh, circumstance beyond your control. Maybe you have a child who's off the rails and their whole situation is very humbling. Maybe uh, life didn't turn out how you expected. Maybe you lost that job or the business failed or whatever, and you're facing hum- humble circumstances. I think regardless, humble circumstances apply to all of us at one point or another. And what James says is to take pride in your high position. Now, this is counterintuitive because our pride is based on our accomplishments, our, 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 our assets. Our value in this culture is derived from what we have earned, what we have in the bank, what our title is, the amount of power we've acquired along the way, or the success that we've achieved. That's, that, those are the yardsticks. That's how we determine in our culture, and in, I think in humanity in general, what our value is, and what James is doing is he is challenging the very metrics that we use to measure who we are and what our lives are worth, and he's saying, if you're in a humble circumstance, take pride in the humble circumstance you're in, Like, and, and a lot of times what is taken from us through a trial is what this world uses to tell us the value of our lives, right? And James is saying those things have no bearing on your value as a human being. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says this: See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. That's your value. You're a child of God. You're a kid of the king, you're a prince or a princess in the large scheme of things, in the eternal scheme of things. When, when you die, there's a mansion waiting for you in heaven. The streets are paved with gold. And as I've said in previous messages, I'm not 100% sure that they're literally paved with gold. It, it may just be what, they're say, what the Scripture is saying there is that, you know, what you guys consider the most valuable thing here on earth, we just pave roads with in heaven. <laughs> it's that much better than what we got going on here. But our value is in our relationship with God in whose we are and who we are, not what we have or what we've acquired or the success we've achieved or the power that we have. We're using the wrong yardstick is what he's saying. King David in Psalm 139, and I want to encourage you this week to read Psalm 139 five times and, uh, and just read it each day And meditate on this because this, I think David ties into where our value comes from and how valuable we really are as he writes this psalm. This is what he says You have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. So, first off, God knows you inside and out. He knows how many hairs are on your head, as Jesus said, He knows everything about you. The the creator of the universe. Who sees everything, is aware of who you are, of of what is going on in your life. He cares about you that much. He goes on, he says, you know, when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar, you discern my going out and my lying down, you are familiar with all my ways. The creator of the universe knows everything that's going on in your life. There's some value to be drawn from that. Before a word was on my tongue, you, Lord, knew it completely. Then he says, you protect me. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. protect me, guide me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And then he says, where can I go from your spirit? not, Not only... Not only do you know what's going on in my life, not only do you protect me and you're with me and you surround me, but we're inseparable. Like, like you are so committed to who I am that there's nowhere I can go to get away from you, and that's in a good way. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence if I go up to the heavens? You're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. You're guiding and directing my life. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. There's nowhere I can go. There's no situation I can get in. You are so committed to me, God, and who I am, I can't get away from you. There's nothing that can happen in my life that will separate me from you. And then in verse 13, he says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You put me together piece by piece, stitch by stitch, strand of DNA by strand of DNA. I am exactly how you wanted me to be. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written In your book before one of them came to be that's who you are that's who you are that's what God the creator and maker of everything seen and unseen that's how he feels about you that's what you're worth to him all right and so Humble circumstances, plentiful circumstances, it doesn't matter. This is your identity. This is your identity, not your success, not your power, not the wealth you've accumulated or the influence you wield, not whether you're going through good times or bad times. These things are true. They don't change. It's who you are. When you get that through your heart, man, it changes the way you live. And then when you go through persecution, then when you go through a, a, a trial of many kinds, okay, but God, I'm still with God. He still loves me. I'm still a kid of the king. And we live in context of truth rather than living by the yardstick of this world. In verse 10, he goes on, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. Now, I think a fair question at this point after reading verse 10 is this, does God hate rich people? I hate those rich people. Yeah, I'm rich people. No, I don't think he does. I mean, I, I look back through, through Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, we've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Job, God's friends with some pretty w- wealthy people along the way. In the New Testament, there weren't a lot of wealthy followers of Jesus, but there were some... And he loved them, too. So I don't don't really think that God hates rich people, but God is fully aware of how dangerous wealth is, how deceiving it can be if we're not careful with it. And here's the problem. You're rich. Like, James is writing to you. And you're like, well, I'm not rich, and and, and I understand how we can come to that conclusion because we're a culture of comparison, right? We get on Instagram and we look at the people who are rich, or we look around and, well, there's people who have more than I do, but from a global perspective, every one of us is wealthy. If you're born in the United States of America, there's a very good chance you're in the top 5% of the wealthiest people on the planet. Like... A billion people are going to bed hungry tonight. There are several billion people who live on less than a dollar or two a day in our world. If you have a television, an automobile, and a roof over your head, you are likely in the upper echelons of the richest people on the face of the earth. So don't let yourself off the hook on this one. All right, now there's some question as to who James is addressing here. There's some, some debate there. Uh, most Christians at this point, not all, but most Christians were poor. There was not a middle class at this time in history. There were, there were the ruling elites and there were the slaves and serfs, right? And so most of Christianity, was a, a, it was a movement of the, of the poor. And the elites were persecuting. I mean, they're burning Christians at the stake at this point. And so is he writing about the people who are persecuting the Christians or is he writing to the Christians who have? My, my inclination, and I can't tell you 100%, but my inclination, is he's writing to the Christians that have. And he's saying your value is, is not what you have. It's your adoption into God's family. And be careful, if you are, in this classification of rich see it's not it's not what you have it's whose you are and who you are that makes your life valuable and that's what we boast about that's what we take pride in not what we have it's not the influence you wield or the success you've experienced in this life And then in verse 11, he goes on to say, and and if your value is in the things of this world, if that's where you're drawing your identity, well, those things are all going to fade anyway. In verse 11, he says, For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. It's all temporary. It's all very temporary very temporary. Life is short. You ever heard that expression? Life is short. Life is a, Scripture says it's like a vapor or a mist. It's like here and it's gone. I remember when I was 16 years old, I pulled up outside of my friend's house. His mother had just turned 40 years old. Uh, There was a sign over the door. It said, Lordy, Lordy, D is 40. And I remember, I can remember exactly what went through my head at that moment. I thought, 40 years old, man, that's really old. Like, I don't know if I'll ever be 40 years old. Like, that's forever away, right? I'm 16 years old. I'm 53 today. The last 35 years were gone like that. I mean, I can remember that moment. It was like boom, gone. And the next 35, man, every year gets does anybody notice that every year gets faster? Like, like, it's, it's like, it's incredible. And so, I'm, I'm expecting to be dead in a couple days. I mean, well, okay, maybe 35 years. But it's going to feel like a couple days because it's short. It goes fast. You guys are going to be old soon. Just saying. <laughs> and so, it happens so fast. Our time here is so short. And when you put it on the, the timeline of eternity, it's a blip. We're here. We're gone. This time here is so very short. You know, if, at funerals I'll often refer to the Scripture in Ecclesiastes that says there's wisdom in the house of mourning. And I think what that means is when somebody we love passes away, we, we stop, we come face to face with our own mortality, and the reality that we're only here for a little bit, that we're all going to die... And that there is something to consider on the other side of this life. There's wisdom in that. And, and it really does force you to look at how short this life is. And we tend to busy ourselves so much that we don't think about that. We just keep going. So, in light of all this, is it wrong for Christians to be rich? Is it wrong for Christians to be industrious and to work hard, to be successful, to be motivated and ambitious? Is it wrong? I don't think so. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is it is wrong to find our identity and our value and our net worth. It's wrong for us to use, as a follower of Jesus, don't use the measuring stick of this world. We measure our lives by whose we are and who we are in Him, not by the success, not by our bank account, not by the power that we have or anything else. If we start using that, that's going to lead your heart astray. That's going to burn. It's wrong to find our worth in our net worth. It's wrong to treat others in light of what we have. It's wrong to think more of ourselves in light of what we have. I think that's what James is saying here, pretty sure. So that is a hard issue though, isn't it? And so the question then, and what I want to wrestle with for the rest of our time together is how do we manage our hearts when it comes to our wealth and success? How do we manage our hearts when it comes to our wealth and success? And for that, I want to turn over um, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to kind of follow along in what I consider kind of a parallel passage. The Apostle Paul wrote this as a letter to Timothy, who was one of his protégés, and it ended up getting circulated around the churches and eventually became part of the New Testament. And so 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, how we manage our hearts In light of our success and wealth and this is what it says verse 17 he says command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain but to put their hope in god who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment so is he commanding us to get rid of everything no, he's not. Is he commanding us to feel guilty because we have? No, he's not. And he is speaking to every single one of us because we are all wealthy. We live in a miracle, guys. And, and I know, I think, again, this is all comparison, but, but we live in the, the, the wealthiest nation in the history of the world, we live in the, the freest nation in the history of the world. The freedom we've experienced over the last couple hundred years is unlike anything the world has ever seen. And we're, we're in a, a, a moment where we're going to find out whether that, that can endure. The founders of this country had questions as to whether that would endure or not. But it's been a miracle. It's been quite a run. And it's very atypical When you look down through history what we have been living in and so we are rich we are blessed we are we're an anomaly and so he's writing to us how then do we manage our hearts when it comes to our wealth well he gives us some very practical steps first don't be arrogant about it don't be arrogant about it now why would he why would he command this? Because wealth tends to make us arrogant. You know, Americans have this reputation around the world of being arrogant. Why? Because we are. <laughs> because we, we, w- when, when, you, when you have, you begin to believe that you're smarter than people who don't. It's just human nature. And I've seen this as I've traveled in the developing world. People who roll in who have resources all of of a sudden think they're smarter than everybody else. And it's funny because the people who don't have resources look at the people who do and think they're smarter than everybody else. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, half the time we inherit it. We were just born here. doesn't make us smarter than everybody else. But it goes to your head. It's human nature. So don't be arrogant about it. And I would, I would actually put a, a, I would encourage us to be active in the other direction, especially if you have. Humble yourself. Intentionally humble yourself. Protect your heart. Number two, don't put your hope in it. He said, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so Uncertain. You know, our hope is going to be in God or it's going to be in money. That's what Jesus said. We're going to, we're going to put our hope in one or the other and then we will end up worshiping one or the other. And, and, and money is temporary. This life is a mist and it's so uncertain. You know, um, you know we, we may or may not, the market could crash, the banks could close. I mean, it could have hyperinflation and not be worth anything. Anything could happen. And here's the problem, when we put our hope in it, it leads our hearts astray. If you jump back in 1 Timothy 6 to verse 9 and 10, he very clearly lays out what happens. He said, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and and destruction. When this becomes your yardstick, the thing you're striving for, it's going to lead you down the wrong road. Then he says, very famously, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, I need to stop there. Money is not the root of all kinds of evil. Have you heard that before? Money is the root of all evil? Money is not the root of all evil. Money is a moral neutral. And you can actually do a whole lot of good things with money. You can... You can build counseling centers and hospitals and feeding centers, and you can, you can do all kinds of fantastic things with money, or you can do a lot of destructive things with money. But it's the love of money, again, it comes back to the heart and what we're doing with it in here, it will lead you astray. These are no uncertain terms, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. When we start to trust money, when we put our hope in money, when we find our identity in money, when we begin to worship money, it leads you away from God. That's very clear, absolutely clear in the Scripture. And it will never provide you with what matters, It will never provide you with what fulfills but it certainly is a temptation and it's very alluring which brings me to point number three you can write this down he says put your hope in god he says but to put their hope in god command them to not be arrogant to not put their hope in money but to put their hope in god put your hope in god who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment and i love that verse. Like God provides you everything you have for your enjoyment. And and, and 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 as we're about to see in verse 4, something else. I'm not feeling the guilt here. What I'm feeling is handle these things in your heart in a, in a way that is responsible, in a way that Understands the gravity of the situation and the danger of the situation you're in. Trust in God for your provision. You know, at the end of the day, how many of us... Don't raise your hand. I'll just raise my hand. How many of us worry about money? God's going to provide everything you need. That's the promise. And he'll provide more than you need because it's for your your enjoyment, you know? I mean, God's going to provide for you, but yet... If we're worshiping money we lay awake worrying about money we worry about having enough or getting more and that's exactly the problem this is this is the danger of stuff it begins to capture our heart we begin to move our affection from god over to it and we end up worshiping it instead of god that's the temptation of wealth jesus takes this head-on, and Jesus, in no uncertain terms, identifies how dangerous wealth is. Again, Matthew 19, 23, then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. I think Jesus is just acknowledging reality, but this is a, like, like, if I could have signs, I probably could. I just didn't think about it ahead of time. Signs on the screen, warning, warning, warning. This is for all of us. Handle with care. Be aware. Watch where your heart and where your heart is with this topic. In 1955, the uh, Congress of the United States Felt compelled to put a warning label on our currency. Go ahead and throw that up there. In God we trust. Because, because the understanding is we're going to put our trust in the money and not God. So every, every piece of currency you get out of your wallet has a warning label on it. Make sure your trust is going in the right direction. Don't put it in this. This will lead you astray. Our value is not in our stuff. It's not in our success. And if it is, you are in dangerous territory. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 says this, This is what the Lord says, Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me our relationship with God, our friendship with God. That's what we measure our value and our worth by, not by by anything of this world. It's knowing God, knowing that we are His children. So make no mistake, wealth is dangerous. It's dangerous and should be handled with great caution. And it certainly doesn't make you better than anybody else. So act that way. That's really what he's saying. In verse 18, here, 1 Timothy 6, 18, he goes on, he gives them the next thing to do, the fourth point, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Talking about those rich people. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Number four, write this down. The antidote to wealth poisoning is generosity. You know what wealth poisoning is? It's buying the lie. It's believing our own press. It's, it's, begin, it's beginning to, to love money and to find our, our value and our identity and what we have and getting more of it. That's, that's wealth poisoning, and it will become your God, as we've already discussed, and we're all at risk of this. And like I said, it's not your fault. You were born here, but it is a reality, and you need to be aware of it. And he says the antidote is to be outrageously generous, to be outrageously kind, and give until give until you feel it. I think I back during bridging the gap, I quoted uh, C. S. Lewis, who said the only the only way to to get know that you're giving in faith is to give until it scares you. Give until it scares you. That's the that's the practical step. Now, I know some of us are thinking, but, but what what about me? Well, the other side of this is the greatest adventure you're going to live in this planet is being the blessing being outrageously generous and kind. That's what you were created for. God didn't create you for your own comfort. He created you to be a force for good in this world. And the life that you're looking for isn't found in a more comfortable couch or a bigger television. It's found in being out in the world shining the light of Christ. It's found in being outrageously generous and kind and showing people who God is by the way that you love them found in being the blessing. Alright so in verse 19 he goes on, in this way they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So as I read this, what I'm I'm seeing is that God actually wants you to be rich. (laughs) He does. He wants you to be rich. In the life that is to come, in the age that is to come. And that actually when you think about it and you think how short this life is, how long eternity is, that just makes sense. That's just smart. Jesus put it this way in Matthew six, nineteen do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and hyperinflation breaks in and steals. Doesn't say that, but I'm just But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Saying that, look guys, live an outrageously generous, kind life. Take these resources that I have given you and, and give until it scares you. Bless others. Do good. Shine my light. Invest in things. Eternal. And by doing so, you can send your wealth on to the next stage. You can put your, your wealth on account in, 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 the, in a bank from where you're leaving or in one where you're going just makes sense to put it where you're going, right? You can be rich for the few years that you're going to be on this earth. And he's like, no, no, no. Invest in the future. Dying with the biggest pile of money doesn't do you any good. You can stuff it in your casket. It doesn't make it to the other side. But you can send it on ahead. Which brings me to point five. You can and should take it with you. You can and should take it with you. He doesn't tell those who are rich to get rid of it all, does he? He doesn't. He just says, be outrageously generous and kind. Don't don't find your hope in, in it. Don't find your security in it. Don't find your identity in it. Be as outrageously generous as you can be. Make a difference with it. Put your treasure in the place that you're headed, not the place you're leaving. Put your treasure in the place you're headed, not the place you're leaving. That just makes sense, doesn't it? Second Corinthians 9, 10 through 11, the Apostle Paul writing, this is what he says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. What he's saying here, he's talking about wealth, right? And and, and he's speaking into an agrarian culture and he's saying, God who gives you the ability to make more seed, right? But also we eat seed. So our, our provision and our ability to create more, God provides all of that And he says, and you will be enriched in every way. God's going to provide for you in every way. Do you believe it? He's going to do that so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Is it okay to be rich? I think absolutely if you live this out, if you manage this, Jesus, God has always had wealthy followers, but they understood the, the trap, the danger of wealth. And so must we. And guys, again, because we live where we live, we have what we have. This applies to you, it applies to us. But you have what you have because God provided it for you. So this is not a guilt message. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. So use it. Use what God has given you to bring glory to Him, not you, to send people to heaven. You know, back in in March when we did Bridging the Gap and then in, in April when we had our commitment weekend, i just absolutely blown away by the stories, by the conversations with many of you who took tremendous steps of faith and trusting God in the area of generosity. And to see God come through and to watch what He's doing in your lives is, is amazing. It is a powerful tool for shaping our hearts, but it's also something powerful that we get to be a part of, sending it on ahead and sending people on ahead. So if you're wealthy in this world, chances are you are. Don't put your hope in it. And don't find your value in it. It does not determine your value as a human being. Use it for good. Invest in things eternal. And What's eternal? God's kingdom and people. God's kingdom and people. Invest in those things. And God will continue to supply you seed so that you can continue to sow. If you're wealthy... Make sure you're deriving your identity from the right place, taking pride in the right things. And if you're not, if you're poor in this world, don't find your value in this world. It's this other side of the same coin. The yardstick that everybody's using, it's bogus. You are a child of God, a kid of the king. You are so valuable that God paid for you with the life of his son. That's pretty amazing. I've got four questions for you. So besides reading Psalm 139 this week five times, I want you, and I I really want you to do this. Some of you are looking at me like, but I'm just watching. Take out your pen. I gave you a pen on the way in. Take it out. Write down these four questions, and I want you to wrestle with these questions. Meditate on these questions. These four questions will change your life. Right? Psalm 139, these four questions. This week, question number one, how much of your stuff is your stuff? How much of your stuff is your stuff, and how much of it is God's? Question number two, whose kingdom are you building? Whose kingdom are you building? Are you building your kingdom or are you building his kingdom? Wrestle with that. Meditate on that. Pray through that. Number three, where do you draw your identity from, really? Number four, which world are you living for? The one that lasts a minute or the one that lasts forever? Which world are you living for? I'm telling you, you wrestle those four questions to the ground, it will change the way you live. And I hope that you will. Spend some time this week. And in verse 12 of James... He says this, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. James continually, as these guys are going through hard times and trials, he is saying shift your view from this world to the next. One of the most significant shifts you will make is to stop living for this world and start living for the next, even while you're still living in this world. It's a decision. It's a decision that every one of us is faced with. And it doesn't mean that we don't get to enjoy this life. God gives us everything for our enjoyment, right? So it doesn't mean I think we're supposed to enjoy this life as much as we can along the way, as much as we have grace to. But it does mean our eyes are on where we're going, not where we're leaving. And if we can live that way, We can live a life that is really life. And regardless of our circumstances, our hearts can be full. Guys, we're going to to share communion this morning. You got communion cups on the way in. that has got a piece of bread on the bottom and juice on the top. And so as we sing these next couple of songs, I want to invite you to spend some time reflecting, to ask God, is there something in my life that's out of line, something, an area of my life where I need to confess and get things right? And I want to invite you to do that. And then when you feel like things are right, then I want you to to partake in in communion. You can sit for this. You can stand, Whatever you're more comfortable, But once you've taken your communion, I want to encourage you to stand and sing and and worship God with the the rest of us. But if you need to sit for a few minutes at the beginning, that's absolutely fine. You know, ultimately, our value is in the price that somebody would pay for us. And the price that God paid for us was the death of His Son. And on the night that He was betrayed, He took bread and He broke it And he gave thanks for it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take this and eat this. This is my body broken for you. And then after supper, he took the cup, and he blessed it, and he gave it to them and said, drink this. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you do this, do it in memory of me. Father, thank you... That you find our lives so valuable <laughs> that you would be willing to pay for them with your own life, to send Jesus to die in our place. God, thank you for the brutality of the, the cross, Lord, the broken body, the poured out blood, because the wages of sin is death, and it is not pretty. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, thank you for paying our price. Thank you for purchasing our lives. And, Lord, as we come to, to worship you this morning, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd just fill this place, that you'd fill our hearts, that you would speak. Lord, if there's a place that we need to, to get right with you, that you would speak that. God, that you would do your work in us. And God, that you would wash us, wash us of clean and, and fresh again today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Church Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.